Welcome to Design Talk. This episode is a podcast version of a video from the Business Analytics Educators Forum YouTube channel. Today, I talk with Christina Phillips from Liverpool John Moores University about applied business analytics in organizations. Let's start with Christina's key takeaway. So it really depends on the context, how you would work with people. The important bit is the iterations of design and the constant involvement of the people who are going to be the end users of the analytics. It's about creating a dialogue between the analytics and the person who's going to use it and then making sure that they are aware of the limitations of the algorithms and the data that they're using and that they're able to adapt for that and they're happy to adapt for that because they've been given the maximum agency that they can be given in the development of those analytics. Now tune in and listen to the full interview. Okay, so... Hi, I'm Alan Higgins, and I'm delighted. <laughs> Yay, that's a good start. Yeah. I'm Alan Higgins, and I'm delighted to be joined by Christina Phillips, the founder and force behind the Business Analytics Educators Forum. Christina is a senior lecturer in business analytics at Liverpool John Moores University and has worked in applied science research for industry. So to start, Christina, could you tell us a little about your own background and perspective on data analytics? Okay, so um, my background's really varied. Um, I started off when I left school working in um, in the service industry, um, ended up in management in the service industry, um, and then sort of thought, actually, do you know what, this is really quite dull. I think I want to go back to university and do a bit more studying. Except now, instead of studying things like um, English language and art, I wanted to study things like maths and physics. Um, you know, what we call analytics today is basically the application of mathematics to solve problems and uh, computational modelling. And that's actually been going on in maths and physics for quite a long time. And it's become part of maths and physics courses because it's been going on for a very long time. And of course, now things are, are evolving even faster with the application of AI. Um, so af after doing my degree, I actually had a small child. He was only five years old and my partner had got a good job. I did try to do a master's program, but I just found it too much on top of everything else that was going on in life and uh, really wanted to be able to spend time with my son. So I pulled back for a few years and actually ended up working a complete flip, um, working as an artist and a garden designer and a teacher of physics and mathematics um, whilst looking after my son. So a little bit of this here, that there, that there, that there was actually ideal for a mother needing a lot of time to bring up her son. And my partner was quite frequently having to work nights and staying out overnight and things like that. So this made sense. Um, I actually did quite well as an artist. I had quite a lot of exhibitions. I had exhibitions down in Westbourne Grove in London, which is one of the hotspots for exhibiting art. Um, my stuff's been in exhibitions um, in Times Square and in New York City. Um, and I've got quite a few pieces in private collections. So I did okay, but it's not something you can earn a lot of money at. And it wasn't really getting my uh, math brain exercised. And I was kind of pining for that. So I started looking to see if I could find something that would suit that, landed on possibly doing a PhD at Bangor University, um, started paying for a part-time PhD that was actually going to be looking at modelling impossible shadows, um, which is basically where you see shadows that shouldn't be there, um, that end up basically interfering with the way that you're perceiving the space that you're looking at very very interesting but again I was having to pay for it myself which I was finding a real struggle 
And um, I wasn't really gelling with my supervisor, which is incredibly important when you're doing a PhD. Um, and I had some really good friends at the university and one of them turned around to me one day and said, look, I know you're not loving this. How about this job? They can't find anyone to do it. And the job was essentially um, applying mathematics to operations in a local company on a KTP, a shorter KTP, so it was only for one year. Um, and they wanted somebody to basically apply mathematics to solve problems within the company and apply research to solve problems within the company. So um, I went for it. And I was the only person who ticked enough boxes that they could actually employ. So they ended up having to re-advertise it because they've got to satisfy equality regulations. Um, and I was still the only person who ticked enough boxes. So I ended up getting taken on in this firm. And this was where I really hit it with business analytics, you know, because they put they decided I was a business analyst. So when I started, when I took over from the shorter KTP and actually worked for them as a consultant for a period of time, they put me down as a business analyst. And so it was their um, delineation of what I was doing. Personally, I was just like, well, I'm a mathematician and I'm applying what I know, yeah, um, and I'm using research. But it was amazing that the things that I ended up doing, I thought I was there just to apply math. So I was gonna be doing forecasting and things. So, I mean, I just absolutely loved it. It was like, wow, this is really good. Yeah, I got to solve some really tough problems in the company. I got to do some stuff that nobody else there could do. So things like they wanted to know where the right first time within the company was actually working and where it wasn't working. So where they were getting it right first time and where they weren't. And that basically took uh, the application of probability. And so I had to, to do probabilities of one, zero, one, zero, one, zero. It was this and this and this or this and this and actually figuring out the probability structure behind that. Now, somebody who hadn't come from a mathematics background would find that very difficult. But coming from that math background, it just kind of the logic of it just seemed normal to me. It was a real boon for them. It really helped them to understand the way they were managing things, where they weren't managing things great, what was causing them problems and where they could focus their activity. So they found that really useful. And I just suddenly realized that this, this just applying little things in math that to us are just really quite simple application of mathematics can have such a profound effect in business. And because people don't necessarily have the understanding of statistics, data, the way to apply maths to problems, to have somebody come in who does have that both slightly creative and mathematical bent suddenly started to really power up some areas within the company. And then as people sat beside me and were working with me or I sat beside them and I was working with them, what we started to see was the way that I was looking at problems started to bed in with the way other people were looking at problems. So if they had a, a natural leaning towards being quite logical people, they started using software in a similar way to me. They started looking at problems in a similar way. They started looking at things and going, there might be a math that can help there. There might be something mathematical. And I'll go and ask Christina and see if she knows. And that way of looking at things started to become embedded in this company. And it, it ended up leading on to a short six month period of doing consultancy. And then I went into a PhD. The company actually paid for a PhD. I got a scholarship, which was an amazing opportunity. And it's probably one of the most enjoyable things I've done in my life, to be honest with you. Can you tell us a little about the motivation behind starting the Business Analytics Educators Forum? Um, it actually started because of a, 
uh, a meeting at the Chartered Association of Business Schools um, Learning and Teaching Conference, LTSE. Um, and it was the online one because it was during COVID. Basically, the discussion that I put forward for the round table was how do we make business analytics inclusive for everybody? Because we now see in the business world that analytics has become ubiquitous. Just as I was saying about the firm that I worked in, people needed to understand how they could apply maths to help them to do their jobs. And they were working with computers all the time and they're working with things like Excel all the time. They needed to be able to use it effectively. So analytics is not just for those who are the math geeks and the people who can do the maths. It's for everybody in the company to actually understand to at least some small extent. Yeah. How could we make this inclusive was the thing that, that happened at the, at the round table at the, at the panel discussion. And then the BIFE or the Business Analytics Educators Forum came about because someone or a couple of people, I think it was Jane and Gregorius, piped up with, we should have a forum. We should get together. We should have a place where we can talk about this stuff and we can bring this stuff together. And that was the birth of the BIFE. And I, 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 the way I see it is that uh, a lot of the people who are uh, thrust into teaching um, roles in, in research methods, in in mathematical modeling and the like are often coming from other professions and areas. So they're looking to gain uh, knowledge and experience off people with uh, specialisms in different areas. So this is the BIFE is also a, a, a forum for sharing experience and bringing people up from different backgrounds, right? Because not everybody has had a mathematical um, formation or at least haven't, haven't done a primary degree in mathematics. Um, absolutely or... absolutely and uh, it, it's uh, that was really the essential part of it and I think that's why it was born out of a talk that was about how do we include everybody in this how do we make sure that everybody gets the skills that they need for the future that we're moving into um, I know some people are like well I don't like doing maths why do I have to do maths it's like you don't have to do maths but you do have to understand just a little bit to get you through life and as you say I mean like Accountants, how can an accountant go through accountancy today without understanding something about how to apply analytics? So one of the people who suggested the BIFE was somebody who actually teaches business intelligence on an accounting course. Business intelligence obviously is different to business analytics, but how can you do business intelligence if you don't understand at least the fundamentals of what we call business analytics? So this was how the whole thing came about. And you're absolutely right. It's about being inclusive. It's about understanding all of the different places where analytics is applied and what the structure of this discipline looks like, which is actually something that really needs tackling. And I don't think really has been tackled fully as yet. Most people on business analytics programs, especially in the US, tend to think that um, it's about uh, hard methods. And it's very much about hard methods. And you teach a bit of the soft methods, which is about communicating things well and maybe a bit of interpreting data. But actually what we see when we talk to people who are teaching, who, who need to know how to teach analytics well, is that actually it runs across a lot of different disciplines. And that's something I think that BIFE is, is actually working very hard towards is to understand that structure and how we can help people. So perhaps um, looking for some overlap between the educational requirement as a lecturer, you have to teach um, and uh, your research interests, which would be often most many, many academics have, have very separate research interests. But are there any overlaps between your own research interests and analytics and business analytics? 
I think, uh, well, my, my work particularly is in human-centered design of analytics. So I look at um, human-centric analytics, which uh, well, it's, I've dubbed it human-centric analytics, but it's basically those circumstances where you need people to understand the analytics that they're applying so that they can interpret them and apply them better. Um, and you get more traction in the solutions that you develop if you can develop it with people. That's not always the best way of going about it. Sometimes that's not really appropriate, but in other situations it is appropriate and in, it's very badly needed. So I recently gave a, a talk to um, ICAEW, which is the Institute for Chartered Accountants of England, Wales, and they were particularly interested in the possible use of human-centric analytics to help companies to foster ESG monitoring. Um, of course, there's a lot. The, the the rules are being changed in Europe um, and more recent, and in, in the UK as well, around what you have to record for your environmental social governance. Um, and companies are getting worried about doing that recording. Um, I think if you can build your ESG culture by involving people in the development of the things that you measure and the way that you display those things and the way that you utilize those things, then you actually embed ESG into your culture as opposed to just measuring it and doing it as a tick box exercise. And this was the thing that really came out from that meeting with ICAEW. I, I have to say the crossover, and there's an edit there, isn't there? The crossover is um, particularly with students and teaching because I, I ended up getting a teaching award because of being able to teach students maths when they don't really want to do maths, basically. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm sure there's a better way of putting that, but, you know, that's the simple way of saying it. Um, and it's. I think that that actually directly feeds in with the reason why I do something like human centered design of analytics. It's because I like people to be able to understand the power of maths and what it can do for them and that it's their friend, not their enemy. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a co-creative exercise. And if you've got a lot of people, say you have a lot of functions working on one particular thing, then you would need all of those functions to come together to understand the analytics you would use to help them to map, map it, uh, create metrics around it and to uh, monitor it. However, if you have one person working on a particular area and that's what they have to do, then you'd work with that one person and maybe a data analyst or somebody who can clear the data pipelines for you. And that would be it. So it really depends on the context, how you would work with people. The important bit is the iterations of design and the constant involvement of the people who are going to be the end users of the analytics. It's about creating a dialogue between the analytics and the person who's going to use it. And then making sure that they are aware of the limitations of the algorithms and the data that they're using and that they're able to adapt for that and they're happy to adapt for that because they've been given the maximum agency that they can be given in the development of those analytics. Okay, so what does this work look like? Um, what tools or approaches do you apply? I've heard um, you speaking before about um, problem uh, structuring methods and problem solving methods and then systems methods, soft systems, design thinking, you've mentioned that already. What does yeah. the work look like or what approaches do you take? So um, I developed a framework to help HCA, but really, at the end of the day, it's about understanding that you don't have to just design the analytical methods that you're going to use on the data and with people. 
and that you may have to alter those designs and you may have to use very different, very different things. But it's also understanding that you also need to design your interactions and think about how your interactions are going to pan out before you start doing it. So in some cases, something like design thinking might be really appropriate because you want to look at possible futures or uh, potential clients and, and maybe develop personas around that or, you know, different types of user or owners and things like that. But then on other occasions, you might have to do a very deliberate, quite large scale structuring exercise where you really need to understand the problem domain so that you can ask the right questions of the data so you can ask the right questions to solve the problem. Um, in that case, you're going to need something like problem structuring methods. And problem structuring methods come from a long history of something called soft OR, which a lot of people don't like the name. Uh, it's basically soft operational research. People see it as being labeled soft means it's easy. It's actually quite the opposite. It's probably the harder part of OR. Um, it's also quite hard to uh, write papers well to get published in it because it's not mathematical. It's not just like here we've got a new way of doing the maths and we just solve that and therefore I can get the paper published with that new solution because that's a new theory. Theory around soft OR is more difficult. It's more like something from sociology or behavioral or cognitive science. You're coming from a very different place. I would say it's very much like design personally. I, I think I've been reading an awful lot around design and I've done some work writing for design journals and I think that there are very strong parallels between what soft operational research does and what design does um, and between hard operational research and what design um, science does to be honest with you because we're always sort of you know altering something and then trying a new solution. But but that's not to say that soft OR doesn't generate data and uh, and I've heard you say there's nothing better than wallowing in data. Can you expand on that and how the two are related? So I think this is uh, something that anybody from marketing will really, this will really resonate with them. Oh, cognitive science as well, cognitive psychology. At the end of the day, what one person says is an opinion, right? But when you've got a lot of people in the room and they're talking around a specific subject and they all start saying the same thing, that starts to become data, yeah? Collecting people's thoughts on a subject area is actually starting to create data around something. It's data about what people think about something. And that data is just as vital as our hard data. Sometimes it's more vital than our hard data. And many a company will have a lot of people working within it where they hold a lot of implicit data in their heads. And that's not actually recorded in their generalized systems. Now, if something's not recorded in your system, how on earth can you work with it as data? If it's in somebody's head, it's not down as data. So that means you need to pull it out of that person's head, get it down as data, and then add it to the data that you have in the system. Now you start to get very, very powerful data streams where you're comparing people's experience within their job function or whatever with what's going on with the data that you see on the system. And sometimes you will find that that's actually a bit different. And that can cause a lot of problems in companies. So you need to work iteratively towards getting these two things to match. And that might mean some changes on the part of the person, and that might mean some changes on the part of the system. In my case, we actually changed what the system was measuring in a few cases. We put in some more touch points for the system to measure, but we also took out some touch points where people were able to change things in the system. So these two things needed to happen, but they worked very well to actually smooth what was going on in production. 
So the soft methods are just as important as the hard methods. That's basically the, the, the point of it. And they do generate a lot of data, which also needs to be used alongside the hard systems data. Yeah, I, I tend to avoid the notion of there being a hard boundary between the two, that they kind of leak into each other, soft data, uh, numerical data, quantitative data, qualitative data. They each inform the other to an extent. Yeah, yeah, totally. Totally agree. Can you share the kinds of must-have technologies or tools or approaches you've got in your toolbox? So in problem structuring methods, um, I think one of the ones that's used the most is soft systems methodology, but people very rarely use the complete suite of soft systems methodology. What they tend to use the most is something called the CATWO process, which is customers, actors, transformation process, worldviews, owners and environment. I'm not going to explain every single one of those, but um, the one that people use out of that the most is the world views. So actually what they tend to do is they talk about using soft systems methodology, but actually what they're really trying to do is just elicit every world view from the people who are involved in the process. So that's about actually giving people the space to surface what they think about something. Now that might mean that you have to have separate interviews with people. If you think that some people are getting drawn into a group think or if they're getting dominated by powerful players in the group. So you have to kind of be very careful as a facilitator to ensure that you've given people the opportunity to surface what they really think. So this that requires pretty good EQ skills, to be honest with you. Yeah, you do need a, a quite a high level of, of emotional intelligence. I think methods like soft systems methodology, if you read around them, although they're rarely used in full in companies, um, they are sometimes in academia, they all talk about things like being aware that at the end of the process, everybody might not agree, but you try to gain some consensus. Being aware that people will have very different views on things and that you may or you may not change them, but you need to surface them and give them an opportunity to, to say them. But just reading about that before you go into a design process really helps you to kind of go, OK, that's the mindset I need to have. And I would recommend to anybody who's doing business analytics that's not just coding up large scale models, anything that has to work with people, then really do read about problem structuring methods and soft OR, because it really is a helpful thing to help you along that journey. And design. Design is also helpful, although that's not as precise. The thing with problem structuring methods is they've been developed specifically to structure problems and problem domains to help us to answer the right question, basically. So I look to that toolbox when it comes to the soft stuff. You say you don't delineate between the two, but you have to have methods that help you with either side of it, don't you? There's also design methods. Things like design thinking is really powerful and has lots of different tools that are associated with it. But I do recommend rather than trying to pull those tools off the shelf and use them, you read around about them as well, because design thinking is actually an approach. Design thinking in business has become tools and methods. But design thinking from a designer's point of view is actually a way of thinking about things. You know that the knowledge that you're developing will be developed as you do it that you will be iterating your designs and that to some extent that will happen as you work in practice. So as you use it, you will change it and that you will iterate on that design and you will work with the person who's using the design. Um, so that's why design thinking is what underlies user-centered design. 
So I think that's quite an important concept to have in your head when you do this kind of thing. And from the point of view of the harder methods, I found things like segmentation, any kind of segmentation algorithms are very helpful. So I used clustering quite a lot. I used coloring of things. I used Tableau for visualizations, lots and lots and lots of visualizations. And when you realize people aren't quite getting your visualization, try to develop something which is contextualized for them. So for instance, we had some demand planners and some quality people who really thought very different things about what each other was doing and why they were doing it, bringing them together in the room and showing them how the demand was actually very difficult to manage on particular lines and why it was difficult to manage. And I did that through throwing, showing them time series, just done as a time series, showing them different aggregations of that time series. What does that look like over days, weeks, months, three months, which is their lead time? It looks very different and it smooths right out. And showing them things like cumulative distribution functions, which you wouldn't have thought would be helpful. But once you explain what a CFD looks, why it looks like it does, and what one looks like compared to another one, you could then stick up a whole load of charts on a page and they'd be like, oh, so that one's really nasty to manage. Oh, that one looks okay, but that one's nasty. But actually they're the same product. And you start, people then are able to have conversations themselves over what they're seeing. You don't have to teach people maths. You just have to teach people the underlying concepts of what's going on. And then if it speaks to their context, they'll get it. And then they'll be able to use it themselves and they'll be able to use it as an object of conversation that then ends up helping them to manage what they do and to talk to each other about what they do. So it's not, it, it's not really rocket science, but I think what it requires is a, a fairly broad knowledge of the underlying analytics tools and quite a precise knowledge of the different um, structuring tools and the different soft tools that you can use to help you to create that conversation. To close out the interview, do you have a favorite science or data podcast or video channel or geeky secret you'd like to share? Well, there's this guy called Alan Higgins who does ah, come on. podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I love the way that he brings design and analytics together. It's just like, yeah, you're talking my language. <laughs> there's also, and I put the guy's name on here before we did the podcast so that I could actually bring it up. There's a guy called Gerhard Christandl who came to do a talk at our university recently. And um, he's really good at teaching about uh, AI and how uh, lecturers could think about applying AI and think about teaching AI as part of their practice and about fostering a lecturer-student dialogue in how we can go about using AI in the future of our teaching in business schools, which I think is really cool. Um, and there's another chap called Martin Parr, who does a, a good podcast on systems thinking. So he does some stuff about systems thinking, which I find really interesting because he's very much from practice. Although he's Professor Parr, he's very much a man from practice. And of course, we have the Problem Structuring Methods Special Interest Group. We quite regularly do talks and we tend to host those as a video after we've done the talk, which is nice. And that's things from all sorts of different spaces because we have people who are coming from academia who are doing research work around problem structuring methods. But we also have people coming from industry. So we had somebody come talk to us last year about uh, her use of keywords in management processes, which was really interesting. Unfortunately, she was not able to put that up as a video afterwards because there was some sensitive stuff from the company. But of course, what that means is that we were getting it direct from the company, telling us about how they're doing this stuff, which of course is really interesting, very useful for anybody who's an academic or who's doing consultancy or anything like that. 
Um, my own geeky secret is I love nothing better than a whole page of really messy data. I actually like data munging and I get really excited when I get some new data. I love just mining it to see what insights I can get from it. I love doing the visualizations on it and creating new visualizations and thinking about how well they're going to be interpreted um, and really like it when I'm able to bring that to people and see how they interpret it and then alter my way of thinking about it based on what they're doing and doing that iterations of design thing. I just love it. I find it a very creative process and as an artist it floats my boat. Okay. Okay. Well, I guess we'll wrap it up there. Um, but thank you for sharing your ideas with us today. Um, uh, the ideas around the professional form form formation of business analysts, analysts and business analytics people, the language and techniques and the tools for business analytics and your approach and also this growing forum and, and its audience, I think all very relevant too. Um, so thank you very much. Thank you, Alan. Thank you for inviting me.